Today we are entering into the third week of a five-week teaching series here at Covenant. And it's based on the idea of looking at how we change. And the idea behind this series is that change is something we can all lean towards and hope for and believe in because none of us here is perfect. None of our lives are perfect. None of our relationships are perfect. Our world is not perfect. And if you're sitting there going, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I'm pretty great. <laughs> then you're in a lot of trouble. And you need to talk to people who love you enough to tell you the truth. None of us is perfect. None of our lives are perfect. None of our relationships are perfect. Our world is not perfect. There are things that cause us unrest. There are disappointments. There is shame that we have. There are relationships that are strained. There are uh, um, disappointments that we have. There's no way I don't think you can look at our world right now and not hope for change. Right? There's no way we can look at what's taking place, for example, in the Middle East. There's no way I think you can look at how people are feeling as we approach an election year in 2024 in this divided nation going, this is like the kingdom of God. This is just great. I think when you look at the book of Revelation and the new Jerusalem and how it's supposed to work, I think we're kind of like this. I think this is in America in 2024. That's what it's going to be like. We are a people who in different ways, in your life and my life, in this world, we hope for change. And where we started in this is that to understand that change doesn't begin with New Year's resolutions. It doesn't begin uh, in any way where we are the ones who determine change, where we look at it and go, this is what my life's going to look like. This year, I really mean it. This year, I'm really going to follow through. Lasting change over time doesn't start with us. We looked at week one at the book of Acts chapter 9 and saw that change begins not with us, but change begins with God. God is always the agent of real change in your life, in your relationships, and in our world. God is always the agent of change. When Saul is on the road to Damascus in the opening verses and he's knocked down to the ground and God gets involved with his life, it's not the things that Saul thinks needs to change, but it's actually what he thinks is his greatest strength that God wants to get involved with and start changing. So we began by saying, how do we open our lives up to God who can change us? How do we put everything in our life on the table? Saying, God, you know, as more and more that my life aligns with your will for my life, I come more fully alive. I find more purpose in this world. So what do we mean to kind of put everything in your life on the table and say, God, what do you want to do? That's where we started. Week two, last week, what we did is said to gain clarity in where we want to go. We can't just find clarity ourselves. It's not that we're going to sit there and on our own go, yep, I understand perfectly what God wants. God's changing my life and I see it clearly. But what we see is that change and, and, and how we change gets clarity in community. That Saul, as he's in Damascus, God working in his life, him blinded and confused, that Ananias is sent to him. And that it's when Ananias comes to him that Ananias actually has clarity about what God wants to do in Saul's life before Saul does. If you are going to have clarity about what needs to change in your life, if you're going to have clarity about what God might be doing in your life, you need to have other people with whom you are processing that. So this past week we invited you to have some conversations in community in small groups, and Bible studies. Uh, if you were sitting there going, I don't know where I have those conversations. This is why this spring guide we mentioned at the beginning is so important. Because we want to get every single person at a large church like Covenant involved in small pockets of community where you're having very real conversations. Where you can ask each other, what do you think is supposed to change in my life? What, what, and if I'm not certain, what do you see that God might want to do in my life? 
Sometimes we gain clarity through the perspective of others. And we've got to find those pockets of community where we discern together. And I hope you've been doing that. Now today, week three, we're actually going to be reading the same nine verses we read last week. Okay? But last week we looked at it primarily through the eyes of Saul. And how Saul was really impacted by Ananias. But today we're going to look at these nine verses simply from the viewpoint of Ananias. Because when we take some time, not to vote, Acts chapter 9, that's the conversion of Saul, road to Damascus. But Ananias' life has changed too. And when Ananias is called, I want us to see that no matter what God wants for you in the year ahead, no matter what change, no matter what things God might be bubbling up in you, that what is involved foundationally in the call of Ananias is going to be a part of what is going on in your life. It might look differently for those of us other than others. But if what you're discerning God looks like doesn't have the, the fabric of Ananias in it, you might be missing some things. Ananias has something to say to us all. So, let's go back to these nine verses, starting in Acts 9, in verse 10. And I invite you to listen again to God's word to us today. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray no matter who we are, how we gather and worship, what hopes, what dreams, what questions, what doubts, what beliefs, that every one of us today would encounter your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I want us in this third week just to focus on Ananias for a second. And if you're Ananias, I want you to put yourself at what it would have been like to have God show up as you are in your home in Damascus. God, imagine this in your life today. That God just shows up, right? And says, you know, um, Jim, Dave, Sally. And you're going, oh my gosh, you're here. Now this might isolate me on an island of spiritual immaturity, what I'm about to say, right? <laughs> But I wonder if there was a part of Ananias that when God shows up, Ananias was going, oh my gosh, you're here. 
I've got so many questions about my life that I want answered. I've been praying about this thing over here that's been bothering me for two years, and I bet you're here to give me clarity on this. I haven't felt really fulfilled in my job for a while, and I'm wondering if I'm supposed to make a change, and what do you think I should do about that? And you know, you know, my in-laws are, they're kind of bugging me, and, and I'm wondering like how I'm supposed to respond to that. And then I look at the state of Damascus today, and what's going on, and am I supposed to kind of vote in a certain way, or how am I supposed to, Lord, I got so much that I'm so excited for you to give me clarity about what do you want to talk about first? I got a long list. Now, again, I might be on an island of spiritual immaturity that that might be the jump I would make, but I wonder if some others of us might be excited to get clarity in that same way about the things you're wrestling with, the questions you have, the things you'd like to see changed in your life. And imagine what it was like when the Lord goes, okay, I need Ananias. Whoa, 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 whoa. Zip it. <laughs> I want you to go help Saul. And Ananias is like, what? I mean, did you hear me? I've been praying about this thing for two years that's been bugging me. I'm wondering what we're supposed to do in Damascus. Do you see what's taking place around us? I'm thinking about what's taking place in my relationships. And you want me to go help this guy? Now, there's part of in his response going, are you sure you want me to go help Saul? He's been murdering people. Do you know that he's been murdering people in your name? And am I really supposed to go there? But I wonder, too, if there's a part of Ananias going, are, are we, are we going to talk again after that? Or is, if, if I go talk to Saul, are you going to still be here when I get back? Because I got stuff <laughs> in my life that I'm wondering about. I want us to think for a second about what lies at the heart of the call of Ananias. And I want you to be asking yourself throughout the next few minutes and as we go forward in the week, this. Who is God sending you to in 2024? Who, not what causes are you going to give money to, not what things are you going to post online to enlighten the world about your viewpoints, who, who is God sending you to in 2024? That if there are not names that immediately come to mind, then you may not be seeing the fullness of what God wants to do. Because you see, there's something that's happening here. There's something that is, is disorienting as it might be for Ananias that we see at the heart of the nature of God and the heart at the nature of God's call upon his people, and it's this. God is ascending God. God is ascending God. Think about it in what we just celebrated at Christmas. The very nature of Jesus coming in the world, the incarnation, is that Jesus is sent into this world to serve the needs of this world, to save this world, to bring grace and salvation to this world. We see it all throughout this chapter, even in God's self, that when uh, Saul is journeying from Jerusalem to Damascus, God doesn't just sit there and go, man, I hope Saul figures out that murdering Christians is a bad way to be. But that God, Jesus is sent to Saul and encounters him on the road to Damascus. That when Saul is blinded in Damascus and there, that Ananias isn't going to wait, God's not going to wait for Ananias to go, I feel like someone should help him. I mean, it's been a long time. Someone should take pity on him. I think we're going to go help him. God has sent Jesus to Ananias. And sitting there and saying, you are the one to go. And so when God is ascending God in God's self, 
then it shouldn't surprise us when we're doing what at Covenant? Encouraging one another to follow Jesus. That there is an essential question we need to be asking of who is God sending us to, because that's the nature of God. So God sends Ananias to Saul. And it's not because Ananias isn't important, right? Oh, Saul's got this amazing call. He's going to become Paul. Someone's got to give him sight so he can go write Romans. Every, the world needs the book of Romans. And so, you know, Ananias, I know you got stuff in your life, but I really kind of need you to be Saul's valet. I just need you to sort of show up and lift him up because I got this really important thing for him to do. No, Ananias is sent to serve Saul. And what is the nature of Saul's calling? Saul's calling is to go out and to serve the needs of the Gentiles. To go out and bring the gospel. Saul is then sent to the needs of others. And it goes on and it goes on. God sends God's self. God sends us. Who is God sending you to in 2024? And friends, what we see is, is that if we can start believing and trusting and thinking this way, it's countercultural. It's countercultural because if you think about how we think of change as people, even if you make New Year's resolutions or not, this might be how you approach change. Number one, this is the change I want to make in my life. We talked about in this week one. You can't be the source of change. God has to change. But what I want you to think about today is when we are the origins of change, when we think and determine what change is, we're also the objects of change, aren't we? That's how human beings think. We're the point of the change we want to make. Oh, I, I, I want to be healthier this year and, and feel better in myself, so I'm going to join a gym. Oh, I'm getting, like, struggling in my job and not feeling very fulfilled for a while, so this year I'm going to really network and I'm going to be in a different place next year. Oh, my retirement is as fulfilling as I want it to be. It's not what I imagined to be. So I'm going to go work part-time so that I can kind of exercise my brain and meet some people. Now, again, if that's any of you, I don't want you to feel bad. None of those things, none of those desires or decisions is bad. But God's vision for you for 2024 is not for you just to be ultra-focused on yourself and what you need and what is going to make you happy but that God actually sweeps us by sending us into a story bigger than ourselves. And we are rescued as well as others because we're called into something bigger. You were made for a purpose. C.S. Lewis, and I've quoted this before, Christian author, writer, thinker, talks about the word joy, and he says that joy is the presence of purpose. Think about that. Joy, having joy. It's not being really, 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 really happy. That's joy. Joy, according to Lewis, isn't even necessarily at its core an emotion, although it has an emotional response to it. Joy, he says, is the presence of purpose. I want to have more purpose in my life. Who's God sending you to? Who is God sending you to? And you might just find something in yourself that comes alive as well as working for the healing of others. Now, friends, this isn't just something that goes against human nature. This goes against how the church has been in this country for a really long time. There's a mentor of mine, uh, Steve Hayner, and some of you have heard me talk about this before, that any organization, okay, it, you, wherever you work, think about your company, think about your school, think about uh, your, the nonprofit you're involved in, everything measures success in a certain way, Right? What's the bottom line? How much income are we making? How many deals did we do? What's the satisfaction rate of our customer base? Uh, what's the efficiency by which we're doing stuff? Uh, what's your SAT score when you do stuff? We measure things, and we measure the things that are valuable, that, we really, that really matter to us, that we think are most important. What does the church measure? 
Steve used to talk about the fact that the church measures the three B's. Buildings, butts, and budgets. <laughs> buildings, butts, and budgets. How many buildings do we have? Oh, Covenant's doing really well. We got a new building that's going to be going to go. Eaton Hall's going to get changed around because we have so much need and we, we got to have a space for overflow for worship because, you know, and so that's really great and, 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 we, and our, our space is being used up and so it's going to be new and it's going to be great. We have a coffee bar, it's going to be a chapel, it's going to be amazing. Oh my gosh, the fact that we have, and not only that, the budget, oh, the operating budget of the church has been great and we raised all the money for that that we needed. We're going to take on no long-term debt. We are winning. And buts, were you here on Christmas Eve? Some of you tried to get here and couldn't get here on Christmas Eve. We had people at the two o'clock service at Christmas Eve, and God bless you if you're one of them, and we've got a plan for next year. I just want to say from the beginning, we've got a plan for next year. But if you were here at two o'clock, there were people standing on the courtyard. I don't know if you were one of them. And again, God bless you. I don't know what you could see or hear on the courtyard. All four of our worship services at Christmas Eve increased from last year, significantly, all four. And our online worship numbers were bigger than the year before. And the year before was a big Christmas Eve. We are winning. <laughs> Buildings, butts, and budgets. That's what we measure. It's what we value. It's a victory. God's dream for the church is a growing institution. That's why God made the church. So more people would come to us. Now, I don't want to downplay the importance of growth, genuinely. I, I, I think it's hard to have uh, an institution that is in decline and go, God's just really, we're just kind of lining up with God. There's a wonderful part about growth. It's a wonderful fruit that we see. But it's not, is it the only point? I've been thinking this week as we've been looking at the scripture. I, I wonder, I wonder how different our city was because of 2023 Christmas Eve. I wonder if family dynamics were different because of that service. I wonder if lives outside of the covenant orbit were changed or impacted, or was it just a really cool service where we were all together and then we went on with our day? And there might be some of us going like, I, I think things changed. You know, it was like, it was, the music was great. I felt different. I, it was a sermon. It was about saying yes and going out. And, you know, I'm going to, yeah, I, I feel like this change happened. That's not how you look at what you really value. How do we measure? How do we know? Or do we just assume? That's what we've been trying to talk about as a church, what it means to be a missional church. That the goal of the church is not just attracting people, but it's sending people to become more like Ananias. That a missional church needs to be more outwardly focused. And I think one of the ways we've institutionally tried to do this was about seven years ago in our first capital campaign when I was here is um, the creation of something called the Institute for Missional Formation. The Institute is something that was created to try to help us experiment with how to be missional in the city. How to be missional in the world, to try new things and to give things the room to change or to not work or to work and to surprise us. But to experiment with stuff. And we've seen things come out of it. We've seen the uh, formation cohorts. If you've been a part of that, uh, that started in the Institute. We gave it a try, and now it's under discipleship. We did that with the Love Letter Fund, and the Love Letter Fund is now under mission, and it's kind of moving into a new era of the Love Letter Fund, but we tried it out there to see what it would be. The courageous conversations that we've been doing, they started, let's give this a try and see if it'll work. 
And what I'm pleased about is that we try to move more and more into this missional question of the sentness of people so that we have joy as a people and the world is different. That we're more like Ananias, not just measuring who comes here, but who, how we're going out. We've made a decision in 2024. Uh, and it's written about in your spring guide. You can learn more there. But we are honored to be hiring a position that's never existed before at Covenant. We've just hired a new director for the Institute for Missional Formation to give that more of an emphasis. And the person is someone you know. Alan Hilton was our theologian in residence who's been working with us for the last year, a New Testament scholar from Yale. And Alan's been working with us in great ways, uh, but he's been working with us at 25 hours a month. Starting a couple weeks ago, Alan's now working 25 hours a week. He's going to be part more of a teaching team. He's going to be part more of the preaching team. He's going to be leading us in things like courageous conversations, but he's going to be teaching Bible studies. And he is going to seek in the Institute for new ideas like the Love Letter Fund and others to be experimented with so that we can be more outward focused. And the first thing that Alan and I talked about in the first meeting we had in this role was this. How do we start measuring the sentness of our people rather than the three B's? How do we think about how we know the impact we have and what are the marks of somebody who's living a life of missional purpose, who has that sense of joy? And the reality is the church doesn't know right now because we've never really cared to measure it. Just measure where people come to us. God is ascending God. How do we understand whether we are moving in a direction like Ananias or whether we're just... I just love going to covenant. You see the difference? Who's God sending you to in 2024? For their healing, for your joy. Because while I might not know how to define it yet, and I might not know the metrics, if we can find them, of a missional church, I do know it, and I bet you know it when you see it. You know, and I know, the power of a life that's impacting others when you see it. And it's a it's an amazingly inspiring thing when you see people living with that kind of purpose. They know who they're sent to. And this week, of all places, I was exposed to it at the barbershop, which is not what I was thinking when I went and got a haircut this week. And if you've been here for a while, you've heard me talk, I talked about this once before. Uh, barbershops have been fascinating places for me over the years. Because first off, whether you're in a barbershop or not, when people ask what you do, and at barbershops there's a lot of chit chat, hey, you know how the weather's nice today, or the weather's terrible in Austin right now, or hope it rains, what do you do, and how's your day going, and everything else. It's always weird in life when you tell people you're a pastor. Like, there's never a neutral reaction to that, <laughs> right? You get a lot of different things. And for some weird reason through the years, I've had the oddest experience in barbershops when people are cutting my hair, and it comes up of like, what do you do? Right? I have had people who looked like they wanted to harm me when I told them that. <laughs> I've had people that looked like they wanted to take the scissors and, and to no longer cut my hair, but to stab me with them, right? Where you're kind of going like, do I need to go to someone else? I apologize for whatever happened, but I'm just here to get a haircut. Like I, you know, I've had people who started confessing to me while they're cutting my hair. And the weird part about that is they usually stop when they're confessing. So. What should be 10 minutes is like just kind of going on and on. And it's like, you know, I've been struggling with this in my life and I haven't been. People in the other chairs are turning and looking at you and you're like, I, I don't, I'm sorry. And if you talk to God about this, if you could just, I'd like a three cut on the, on the side. I just, I've got a meeting in 30 minutes that I'm trying to get back to, right? I don't, and, or I had this happen one day. I had to change a whole, I wouldn't, I couldn't go back to this barbershop. I had one lady that started prophesying over me like in the chair for like 45 minutes. 
like God's anointing and spirit is upon you and it's like, it is. I need to go. Like people, were, people were leaving the barber shop around it. And then it was like, do you see what's taking place in the Middle East? Do you think that's Daniel 7 being lived out and, and that the end times are 136 days away because in Daniel 7 this will be And you're like, I don't know. For 2,000 years people have been trying to count this up and they've all been wrong the entire time. Could you please just cut my hair so I can go? Barbershops have been odd, odd places for me. But I found this great spot where I got my hair cut now. And some of you might be going, Thomas, don't hide your light under a bushel. I'm not. It's not Christianity. It's the weirdness of my job that causes these odd things to happen. So I found this great place that fulfills everything I want. You can make an appointment online. You don't have to wait. I'm in and out in 10 minutes. It's cheap. And over the years I've been there, it's cheap, which is my love language. And in all the years I've been going there, no one's asked me what my job is. It's perfect. So this week I'm in getting my hair cut, and this young lady who often cuts my hair is there, and we were doing the chit-chat thing, and I know a little bit about her. She's married, and she and her husband have two young kids, and they live outside of the city, and she's, you know, great, and her dad was in the Air Force, and she grew up in Alaska, and all this kind of cool stuff, and, and, and she knows about me. She knew Baylor. Uh, Miriam was at Baylor and came home, and she was asking how her, how her first semester at college went. What are you just doing the chit and the weather? It's cold, and yeah, it's cold. And, and then she said, how are you feeling about 2024? Uh, you know, and it's like, I'm great, feeling great about 2024. How about you? And then she, she, good news, she didn't stop. She kept going. She didn't stop to talk. But she was like, oh, it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting year for us. And, you know, and I'm like, okay, I can gauge this. And I said, well, why is that? And she said, well, um, Austin's growing. We have this apartment complex across our street. And my mom just moved in last week to the, one of the apartments across the street. And she's a lot. And I was like, I get that. Like, what, like, what are we, what, okay, I, I hear what you're saying. And I said, well, has that been in the process long? It sounds like it was unexpected. And, and she said, well, I don't mean to freak you out, but um, my mom lived uh, in another part of Texas, a much more rural part of Texas. My parents were divorced. And she and my stepdad had been married, remarried for a long time. My stepdad was great. But he died six months ago. And I realized in the six months after the grieving that my mom was out living by herself, no family around her in a pretty rural part of the state. And we've been kind of thinking about what to do. And she said, and this is going to sound weird, and she goes, I don't mean to freak you out, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. And I said, oh, so am I. And uh, I, didn't, I, didn't tell her, I didn't tell her my job, but I was like, so am I. Uh, and she goes, um, and so this one day, several months ago, we were in church, and we were in worship, and it hit me, something we hadn't talked about. I was like, I wonder, I, wonder, I wonder if mom's supposed to sell her house and move into the apartment complex across the street. And she goes, we'd never talked about it. It was like a strange thought. And I, you know, and again, she's a lot. And so I didn't know if that, I, I didn't know how I felt about that, but it, the thought stayed with me. And so we drove home and I was quiet. My husband asked if I was okay. And uh, I said, yeah, but I was still one. And we got in because, you know, he's never talked about my, his mother-in-law moving across the street. And so, but I didn't go away. And so at, that afternoon, I finally just said, I'm like, hey, I got this thought. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm not suggesting it. It's just that, you know, we said we'd be open and honest with each other. And so in church today, I was wondering about mom and he looked and he said I thought the same thing today and I think maybe we should talk to her about it but there needs to be rules about when she can pop in here and when she's not because she can be a lot and so she called her mom her mom decided to come visit and then made a decision and sold her house and got an apartment across the street and she said she just moved in last week. And I said, how's it going? She's like, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. We've already had to have conversations about there are hours you can pop in and there's hours you can't. 
She said, I think, and listen to this, I think it's going to be probably the hardest part of 2024 for our family. And I think it's probably also going to be the most meaningful. That's it. That's it. I don't know how you measure it yet, but that's it. That's somebody who didn't start with a plan, but that God started stirring the waters. They discerned it together. They discerned it with their mom. And now they are living into something that might be hard, but it's where the meaning is going to be found. That's what C.S. Lewis would say is joy. You and I were created for meaning, for a purpose, but your purpose is going to be bigger than just focusing on your own self only. And so the question to sit with today and this week is to ask, who is God putting in your path? Who is God sending you to for their healing, for your joy, and to see how wondrous 2024 might be. So have your antenna up for what it might mean for you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as your, uh, our ascending God, that you would send us as well, your people, to find joy, to be a part of healing this world, to be swept up in a story bigger than ourselves. Help us to have eyes to see who you're sending us to in the days ahead. We lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen.